Hi, I'm Elise Lunan, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today's guest is Daniel Pink. I sat down with him pre-quarantine in Washington, D.C., and we had a fascinating conversation. But before we get to that, I want to thank our friends at Kettle One Botanical who helped make today's episode possible. The Goop team loves a good bar cart. We sell a beautiful one on the site, custom built by designer Chris Earle. And if you've come to one of our pop-ups or in Goop Health, you might have sampled some of the custom cocktails that go along with it, which are often made with Kettle One Botanical. Kettle One Botanical, for the uninitiated, is vodka distilled with real botanicals and made with non-GMO grain. There's no sugar and no carbs and no artificial sweeteners or flavors. You can order your own Kettle One Botanical at drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Daniel Pink is a New York Times bestselling author of several books, including When and Drive, which you may have heard of. They're fantastic. He tends to explore topics at great length that we're all interested in that affect every single one of our lives. Today, we're talking about something that's exactly that, how we manage and think about time. In today's conversation, we talk about time management, projects, and all of the varied ways you can imagine. We talk about how we tend to think of our lives in episodes and that every project has a beginning, midpoint, and end. It might not surprise many of you to hear that many of us don't really get going until we hit that midpoint. He also talks about how our brain functions differently at different points during the day. When we become more aware and more intentional on how we use timing throughout the day, we can optimize our productivity and make better decisions. Give people ideas rooted in evidence. Give them ways to think about their lives, but also give them practical things to do. I'll let Daniel Pink take it from here. I used to type my dad's medical dictation. Wow. I know. My parents are cheap. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of doctor was your dad? A pulmonologist. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, no. It was, it was actually very So you know a lot about lungs? I know a lot about lungs. And it's interesting because one of the things that would drive me crazy, and I feel like my dad is actually good at, at translation and has a good bedside and manner and doesn't try to be obtuse. But I was like, why pneumothorax? Like, why, why can't you just say collapse lung? Like, you know, like medical scientific language sure. is so, it's like legalese. Who are the dictations for, though? Who do they go to? Is it for his records? Or for, for his records. I see. So he'll dictate his notes after he sees a patient. I would type them up. Of course, there were no- Did he pay no, you? I think I got paid minimally, maybe, maybe minimum wage, which is obviously not that well. But I really liked it. And my parents would make me go to- I lived, grew up in Montana, and I would take the public bus from my grade school to my dad's office after school, and then I got tired of sitting in the lobby reading Highlights magazine. So I wanted to do something, and I went to a school with no homework. So No homework? <laughs> yeah, it was a hippie alternative school. Uh, it was— Who were the hippies? In, who were the hippies? Where in Montana was this? This was in Missoula, Montana. So is there a, is that University of Montana then? University of Montana. Yeah. And the school was founded actually by a Danish woman. Uh-huh. And she – it's funny reading about Finland and how great they are at schools and testing. We didn't have testing, but there was plenty of play. 
One of the slogans about the school was Yale or jail, which is kind of true. <laughs> it's a good slogan. I like it. <laughs> uh, unofficial. But it was you were your own your own captain. I love it. Yeah. We had rules and responsibilities and no grades. And there was a lot of intrinsic motivation. And Was this K-12? Through eighth grade. Preschool through eighth grade. Only a handful of kids in every class. And so what happened in high school? I went to public high school for a year in Montana, a high school called Hellgate. and um, Appropriately named? Yeah. And it was fun, but not as many public schools are not well-funded. Sure. And so I ended up going to boarding school my sophomore year. Boarding school? At St. Paul's in New Hampshire. Okay. And I knew how to. I rolled in there. How was that? Amazing. It was amazing. And I, I loved it. But I, I showed up and I... I could, like, write a haiku, and I knew about iambic pentameter, but I could certainly not write a structured five-paragraph essay with a thesis statement. So I bombed my first quarter. <laughs> but I had very amazing teachers who were like, well, let's just sit down and we'll explain this to you. And how did you get along with the people? There probably were not a lot of other Montanans there. St. Paul's has this long tradition with kids from Montana. There's a scholarship oh. for two kids a year to go to St. Paul's, and then to the college of their choice. And my brother had won that scholarship. Yeah. It's amazing. That's a great deal. Great deal. And so there were other Montanans, but I made friends. It just took me, it took me a minute. It took me like six months probably because I'm not really a joiner. It takes me a lot longer than six months to make friends. Well, that's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, when you're four, it was like the forced. Right. Like you were. Have you lived away from home before? No. And how was that? Amazing. Because really my good. parents didn't so you were, have to— you were like 15? 15, and my parents didn't have to rule us. How old are your kids? My kids are uh, 23, 20, and 17. Okay. So you're, you're past that. But yeah, no, it was very liberating. I will say it kind of ruined college. How so? Well, because when I got to college, everyone else was experiencing freedom for the first time. I moved myself in at that point. My parents didn't even come. <laughs> I see. All right. So you were sort of— I was over it. You didn't have that exhilaration of yeah. being away, which is one of the best parts of The best college. part. And it was like from where I stood and what I observed, it was very bonding for people. And I just couldn't— Bonding. Like for all the people who had never been away and were living alone for the first time, it seemed like it really was brought them together in this shared experience. And I was blasé and too cool for that, which is— probably really lame. Anyway, yeah, it's been an interesting journey. Now here I am sitting here with you. In Washington, D.C. Where were you based? In New York? Los Angeles. Oh, L.A. You told me that, right. Yeah. I went to New York, then I went to L.A. And now I get to talk to amazing people and thinkers. So you're fascinated. So do you just, how do you, does the work that you do structure whatever? Are we we in the interview now? Yeah, we'll discuss. Okay, Okay, great. Okay. (laughs) There's no intro or anything like that? I'll do the intro Is, is there rousing music that I can get me pumped up for this conversation? Do you want a no, band? I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, we just go. But so I feel like you've, you're just, you, everything seems related. It's about somehow about optimization, and I would say, or it ladders up to something like that. Like how do we find the purpose and optimize our lives and timing or left brain, right brain. But like what? But what's what's your next book? Like, well, how do you come up with what needs to be written? Well, obviously, there are like six questions in there, at least. Yeah. But, but I, I think there's a if there's a so I've written six books. If there's a pattern to them, it's only obvious in hindsight. Uh, it's not something that was intentionally pursued by a long shot. I'm not trying to say, well, this book, I wrote this book, and therefore that's going to lead inexorably to this book, and that book's going to lead inexorably to this book and in the goal of creating some kind of oeuvre, if you're part of my <laughs> French, um, uh, that it has some kind of bigger transcendent purpose. It's just not how I roll. What I do is I find stuff that I'm interested in and really, really deeply interested in because writing a book is such a gigantic pain in the ass. You have to be really deeply interested in the topic. So I find topics that I'm interested in and pursue those with the depth and as much depth and vigor as I possibly can and then come up for air and say, okay, what else is out there that I'm I'm curious about? But there's no grand plan or no grand strategy. 
But is it is it just it sort of emerges as a problem or as you said a curiosity and then that sparks it? Like are you you must just do you listen hard at dinner parties? Well, that you're, the premise of that is that I get invited to dinner parties, so that's a false premise. I try to listen hard. Listening is actually a really interesting topic because I think most people are not. You're you know, you're becoming essentially a professional listener based on what you've been doing, but listening is not, listening is really hard. I think I try to do. I, I think I'm, I'm I test very high on the psychological trait of openness, so that I'm I'm open to new ideas and I'm I think I'm reasonably curious about things, so I'm paying attention trying not to sleepwalk through trying not to sleepwalk through life and and the truth is is that there's certain things where certain books will okay for for instance so I wrote a book called a whole new mind which makes the argument that an economic argument that that certain kinds of abilities the traditional metaphorically left brain logical linear SAT spreadsheet abilities are becoming necessary but no longer sufficient because of a whole host of economic forces and a set of abilities that we haven't taken seriously enough. Things like artistry, empathy, inventiveness, big picture thinking are becoming more are becoming more important. So I wrote a book about that because I, I was seeing things out there that I was interested in and thought there was a pattern that had gone undetected. Now, after writing that book, people said, okay, if you write about this, like how do we create workplaces and schools and things that motivate people to do that? And I'm and, and, and so my answer to that question was, I have no idea, but what a great question. <laughs> yeah. And so I started looking at that. And then eventually over time, I ended up writing a book about motivation. So there might be some connective tissue between the, the various books, but it's connective tissue that Again, it, it emerges after the fact. It's not, it's not this synthetic process where I'm trying to build some great thing. Right. No, but it, it they do all connect to some to flow, right, or to effortlessness, or finding the ways to achieve your purpose in a way that's easier. Well, what I'm trying to do is figure out what's going on, what's going on in the world that is important but largely unnoticed. Yeah, because that's interesting, and then. How can you write about that in a way that is not simply speculative, not simply gas bagging, but rooted in evidence? And that's really important. And then how can you do that in a way where you have something that's interesting, rooted in evidence, but that is also relevant in people's daily lives? Mm -hmm. And so, so that's a little bit of a... Of, 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 I mean, not always explicitly, but that's a little bit of a frame that I, that I look at these things. But, but it comes back to... I guess, me, <laughs> because yeah. it's, it's a complete, first of all, writing a book is a, a deeply egocentric act. The idea that I'm going to write something, produce something that's going to take people six, seven, eight hours to go through. And I'm saying to them, the six, seven, eight hours you spend with my stuff is more important than anything else you could possibly do. More important than going for a run. More important than doing your own work. More important than spending time with your partner or your kids. Um, and then what we're also going to do in this thing is that I'm not just going to give it to you, but we're going to give it to you in a way where my name is in giant letters on the front. <laughs> and I'm going to make you pay for it. Okay, so it's so it's a monumental act of <laughs> egoism, right? And so when so if you think about it in that way, the the converse of that, for me at least, and I do think about this part explicitly, is that anybody who picks up a book of mine is doing me an incredible service. Mm -hmm. I'm just I'm astounded. I'm still I've done I've been at this a long time. I'm still astounded that someone will pick up a book of mine and read it. I just think that's amazing. And so when I when I when I put together the works. I want to be very respectful and, and of the person's time and attention and brain power and really honor what they've done, the, the, the gift that they've, they've given me. And a way to do that, and this is my long-winded point, is that give people ideas rooted in evidence, give them ways to think about their lives, but also give them practical things to do. Mm -hmm. And one of my frustrations as a reader, and what I try to do is write books that I would want to read, is I'll read a book that's about big ideas, and I'll say, wow, that's a really interesting idea. It changes the way I might think about this corner of the world. I wonder what I should do in response. And then I get to the end, and it's like, yeah, no, because the big thinker doesn't want to deign to give me that kind of practical advice. Now, on the other hand, you have other books that are more in the so-called self-help genre that says, do this, do that, do that. And I look at that and say, well, how do you know? 
Right. Like where, what's this based on? And so I think there's a way to do things that are that marry those two worlds, that are here are real solid ideas rooted in evidence, well argued, but that also yield practical things you can do in your life. No, I, I agree. And I love all the just I read when most recently and just Thanks. Getting... See, that's amazing to me. <laughs> But one of the things that you, in one of your sort of lists, practical lists, you, and you're talking about, I think, the creative process or getting any project done. And I want to talk about that mid, midway point because mm-hmm. I think that's so fascinating. But the fifth point is picture one person your work will help. And then the others, set interim goals, publicly commit to those interim sure, goals. Sure, sure, sure. That's when you're, when you're at a midpoint of something and you're, and yeah. you're slumping. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and it seems, let's, so let's. I guess, explain what the midpoint is. And that seems to be consistent across any sort of project, whether individual or group. Yeah, pretty consistent. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, let, let's take let's take let's take three steps back and talk about how that fits into the notion of timing itself. So yeah. because I think it actually works with some of your er, your earlier questions. So I wrote this book about this about timing. And the reason and in particular, this book had a very, very clear motive. And it was because I wanted to read it. No one had written the book yet Hmm. because I found myself making all kinds of decisions about when to do things. When in the day should I do my writing? When in the day should I exercise? When should I do in the day should I do an interview like this? When should I start a project? When should I abandon a project that's not working? When do I know if a project is totally going to tank and I should just abandon it? And I was making those decisions in a very sloppy way that frustrated me. And I said, I want, and I looked around for guidance. It didn't exist. Then I said, I wonder if there's any research on this question of timing. Mm-hmm. And there was a huge amount of research on this question of timing. It was just splattered across literally, literally 20 different disciplines. And I said, oh, okay, this is <laughs> going to be a pain. I wish someone else had done this, but I want to figure this out. I want to understand what science knows about effective timing. And so this was a, a we, you know, ended up looking through, I mean, just a ginormous number of studies, things that were well outside of my, well, it's, I'm going to use an SAT word here, well outside of my Ken, all right, well outside of my bailiwick. And <laughs> so, so I'm pretty good at like social psychology and economics, but I don't know crap about molecular biology. And there were, re, there was research in there. There was a whole field called chronobiology. There was, you know, all, there was epidemiology. Some of the stuff was using math that was like way over my head. But I, but I felt that I could, if I went wide enough and deep enough, I could crack the code. And one of the things that one of the things that this evidence yields is that we can make better decisions about when to do things in a day. But to, to this point that you're making here, we also it's also a recognition that much of our lives are episodic. Okay, and episodes have careers are episodic in some ways. Projects are episodic. Some relationships are episodic. Episodes have beginnings. Episodes have middles. Episodes have ends. And what we know from a whole variety of research is that beginnings have one effect on our behavior and our outlook. Endings have another effect. And as you're mentioning, midpoints also have an effect. And so if you look at those with a little bit more of a crystal clear-eyed gaze, you can make better decisions. Yeah. So and what I thought, because this deeply resonated with me, the midpoint slump, which is when you have a project or you have a goal or something that you need to do either solo or in group, typically nothing happens, right, for the first half. It's like a meditation or marination period and extreme procrastination. It doesn't matter how long this is. You don't motivate till halfway through when shit gets real. Well, that, that's great. This is a, this is a per, that's, a great, that's a great example because I've had that experience too. Yeah. Now, how do we assess how the world works? We want to draw on our own experiences. Mm-hmm. I have that experience. Is that universal? I don't know. Well, how do I figure that out? You had that experience. Well, wait a second. Two is better than one. Right. All right. You know, so, but but how, how do we evaluate that? Well, you go out and talk to people, but you also go to the research. And it turns out there's research on this question. It comes from a woman named Connie Gersick, who uh, was at UCLA. Now, at, I think she's emeritus at Yale now. And she studied teams in the wild, teams doing you know, a new marketing program for a bank or onboarding for an insurance company. That's sort of basic stuff that goes on in teams and business. And what she did, and this is the ingenious part of her work, is that she recorded every team encounter, either audio or video or both. And 
she went back and this unpacked how these teams worked. And what she found was what she found was again an evidence-based verification of what you and I were intuiting from our own experience, which is this. You give a team 31 days to do a project, they get started in earnest on day 16. Mm-hmm. You give a team 11 days to do a project, they get started in earnest on day 6 right in the middle. And what she found in looking at these transcripts was that there was a moment that exactly as you described, it's totally verifying what you, your, your own experience. The first part, uh, people, especially team project, there's a lot of like posturing and status seeking and that kind of stuff. But then there's a moment where the group throws off its old ways of doing things and really gets down to business. And what she found is that that was eerily at the temporal midpoint. And what was often triggered by someone raising her hand and saying, excuse me, guys, we've squandered half of our time. We got to get going. Yeah. And so that's one of the things. And so if we look at our law, if we look at the things we do in our in our personal life and in our work life as episodic, beginning, ends, middles, we can be more, midpoints are usually invisible. But if we make them visible, we know they're having an effect on our behavior and we can do better. Yeah. I mean, I like to use that beginning to sort of just think. And then there's like a moment. And I guess it's probably the crush of time where I'm like, oh, I'm I'm there. Like I'm cooked. I'm ready to like – I mean, yeah. mine is primarily writing. But I love to – when you sort of aggregated all these tips, like stopping your sentence midway through, which That's was Hemingway, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Or don't break the chain, Seinfeld. Yep, yep. The idea being that if you work on – if you commit to working on something every day and then you can put an X on the calendar, you're not motivated I, to stop. I literally – have done both of those things within 24 hours. So, so this is so, – so again, so this book is in some ways more personal in that I really wanted to read it and I really wanted to know how to do things a little bit better. But, you know, I, I, I've cha- I changed – it's changed the way a lot of things that I work on. And so literally yesterday I was – I'm doing this writing project. It's completely different from other stuff that I'm doing. It's a pro bono th- thing. And it's, it, it's, it's hard because it's in a domain that I don't know very well. And I absolutely use that. I, I said, you know what? I'm stopping for the day. And I literally stopped halfway through halfway through a sentence. It wasn't even my sentence. I was quoting somebody because I knew that if I came back the next day, today, I would have a place to start Yeah. and get going. No, it's so – it's brilliant. And it creates like a certain – if you're at all compulsive and want to finish things, it creates like a certain amount of urgency for sure. Yep. So when you think about something like the beginning, middle, end, is it something that we should just all be cognizant of and then just harness? Or is it something that can be – that should be tempered or should be moderated or hmm. like is it part of our biology? Hmm. Hmm. That's an interesting question. I'm not sure. I think that the approach is as follows. Is that what you want to do is we want to be – more aware of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to timing, we're, it's something that we're often not super aware about. We're not awake to. So if you – the people listening to this, my guess is that if we were to survey them, that at the moment they're listening to this, they probably had a to-do list somewhere in their life. Mm-hmm. So they're very explicit and intentional about what to do. They might be explicit and intentional about – how to do it. Like if they're cooking, they're following a recipe. If they're, if they're at work, they're maybe following some kind of work process. So they're explicit about how to do stuff, they're, about what they're doing, about who they're doing it with. If they're working at an organization, the organization has an HR department that doesn't let anybody in there. We say we have to be intentional about who's allowed to work here. But when it comes to when we do things, we, we're, we're not intentional. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're not awake. And so simply being awake to wait a second, I'm beginning a project. Beginnings have a certain psychological effect. Let me be aware of them and make sure that I benefit from the plus side of it and not and, and don't get swept down by the downdraft of, of it. Endings too. Let's be more intentional about endings because we know that the way that endings have a huge effect on our behavior. And then even though beginnings and endings are often clearly marked, these midpoints are often not marked at all. Right. And yet they're having an effect on us. So let's make them visible and, and do things about it. So 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 it's both. It's I think the real secret though is to is to be aware. And yeah. and, and I, I even like the word because it comes from William James, one of the founders of modern psychology. He had he wrote this essay maybe a hundred years ago that we where he said this line that has bugged me ever since I read it, which is 
He says, most of us go through life only half awake. Hmm. Go through life only half awake. And I think that's true. And it's something that's really bothered me because I don't want to go through life only half awake. But when it comes to this temporal dimension of our lives, I think a lot of us are a quarter awake. And so if you're just a little bit more awake to these things, that's the first That's the first step. Right. And you open the book talking about the cadence of the day and the trends that can be drawn from, I think they use Twitter, but it seems like there's a lot more research about this that across every oh my positive at the beginning, slump, midday slump. Well, I mean, basically what we know is that, is that the, the day, so let's take the unit of the day as a fundamental unit of time. And it is fundamental as a unit. A lot of these units of time that we talk about, I didn't know anything about time before I wrote this, but you think about something like a second. Human beings have decided how long a second is. We could have said a, a second is this long, it longer, whatever. It's, just, it's a human determination. A, a week, a week is not a real thing. Right. We just declared a week is seven days. We could have said, oh, a week is nine days, a week is 11 days, whatever. But a day we don't have much control over, right? We're on this planet. This planet's turning around. Yeah. And so, so but in a day has a big effect on our basically on our mood, our performance, on our overall well-being. And what we know is that from a host of research across many disciplines is that there is this kind of hidden pattern of the day. Most of us, not all of us, and this is important, most of us go through the day basically like this. Peak early in the day, trough sometime in the middle of the day, recovery later in the day. This is particularly true for mood. So our mood is higher at the beginning. It is It plummets in the, say, the mid-afternoon, and then rises later in the day. Now, that's true for about 80% of us. About 20% of us have what's called an evening chronotype, and they have a very different pattern. But the other thing that we know about mood is that we do better at certain cognitive tasks at different times of the day. And so if you understand, like, hey, what's my chronotype, and you understand how does that affect my pattern of the day, you can make actually smarter decisions about when to do certain things. We'll get back to Daniel Pink in just a second. Detox month is all wrapped up at Goop, but I'm still trying to keep things relatively clean, and our food team is always looking for the highest quality ingredients in every season to work within the kitchen. And that includes the bar cart. The team has developed a number of cocktails using Kettle One Botanical, which is vodka distilled with real botanicals and made with non-GMO grain. There's no carbs and no sugar and no artificial sweeteners or flavors. There are three Kettle One Botanical varietals, cucumber and mint, grapefruit and rose, and peach and orange blossom. And they all make for really fresh tasting cocktails. If you're looking for inspiration, see the Goop recipes for sumac salty dog or the peach and flowers, or just grab some fever tree soda and mix a botanical spritz. You can order Kettle One Botanical on drizzly.com to try it out yourself. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. Over the past several years, we've held eight intensive in-person wellness summits called InGoop Health. They have been some of my favorite days. If you've ever attended one, you know how fun they are and how goopy they get, and also that they are highly produced affairs. The team pays attention to every single detail, and the gift bag at the end of the day is legendary. But the most meaningful part of the experience is the community that has formed around InGoop Health, full of people who want to connect more deeply with themselves, the people in their lives, and the world around them. Right now, this community feels more important than ever. And for a long time, we've wanted to find a way to make it and the spirit of InGoop Health more accessible to people wherever they're at. So we've decided to host a digital series of InGoop Health sessions. Each Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific time, me or GP will kick off a one-hour wellness session with an expert we admire. We'll cover spirituality workshops, more intimate conversations, workout classes, and practical effective takeaway tools for navigating this time. The sessions will be live streamed on YouTube initially and they are free to join. If you can, we hope you'll consider making a donation to Doctors Without Borders. For our next session on Wednesday, May 6th, I'm going to be talking with Priya Parker, who is one of my favorite podcast guests ever. Priya wrote a brilliant and beautiful book called The Art of Gathering, which is out in paperback now if you haven't read it. And Priya recently launched a podcast with the New York Times called Together Apart. As you might have guessed, I'm going to be talking to Priya about how we can connect in meaningful ways during this time when we are physically distant. I hope you can join us this week and every Wednesday for the series. 
To learn more, head to goop.com slash ingoophealth. You can also watch our previously recorded sessions there. That's goop.com slash ingoophealth. Back to my chat with Daniel Pink. And so when I thought, of, I was like, oh, at the morning I should use that time for meetings to get organized, to have complex conversations. Afternoon's better for extemporaneous thinking and creativity. Is that fair? Well, I mean, basically what you should do is this. You should do your so, – so again, what's really important is, 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 your, is your chronotype. Are you – do you naturally wake up early and go to sleep early? Do you naturally wake up late or go to sleep late? Are you somewhere in the middle? Mm-hmm. Are you a lark, an early bird? Are you an owl, a night bird? Or are you somewhere in the middle? And what we know is that the distribution in the population is basically 15% of us are very strong morning people, about 20-ish percent of us are very strong evening people, and about two-thirds of us are in the middle. Yeah. And so a, a overly simplified way to think about this is basically is, is to take the people who are owls and non-owls, right? So 20% of us have evening chronotypes, 80% of us do not. Those folks, here's we go through the day, peak trough recovery. And what we know is that during the peak, owls are much more complicated. But the thing about the owls, for all you owls listening out there at 3 o'clock in the morning, is that you tend to hit your peak much, 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 much later in the day. 6 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock, midnight. I mean, to me, it's unfathomable that I would get good work done at midnight. But there are plenty of people out there who naturally, I'm really like on at midnight. So... Here's what we know. During our peak, which again for most of us is early in the day, that's when we're able to bat away distractions. That makes it the ideal time for doing analytic work, which is Mm -hmm. work that requires heads down focus and attention. So writing a report, analyzing data, whatever, doing your complex figuring out stuff that you were talking about. Trough. During the trough period, again, mostly early early afternoon, mid-afternoon, that's a terrible time of day. There are huge drop-offs in performance that time of day. It's not only this kind of folkloric, oh, I'm, I'm tired, I need a cup of coffee. It's like, no, there are big changes in performance. <laughs> and so what you should be doing then is you should be doing your administrative work, work that doesn't require a massive cognitive load. And then for, again, 80% of us later in the day, that recovery period is, is actually really quite interesting because what we have is we have our mood is higher but our, vig- our, vigil- our vigilance is very high in the morning. In the afternoon, our, our mood is high, but our vigilance is not. So you have high mood and low vigilance. That's actually an advantage for certain things that require more conceptual thinking, more creative thinking. Mm-hmm. Think something like brainstorming. You've been in brainstorming sessions with people who are hypervigilant, right? And they'll say, that's a terrible idea. That'll never work. It's frustrating. It's not a- effective. So when people have fewer inhibitions when their vigilance is down but their mood is up, they can be more iterative and, and that kind of stuff. And so there's a basic, there's a general set of design principles. Analytic work during your peak, administrative work during the trough, and what's called insight work during the, their, during the recovery. And again, if you're a, an owl, the most important thing for you is that you should be doing your analytic work, your work that requires vigilance, much, much later in the day. Yeah. And then you sort of take this out and look at Rates for colonoscopies, oh. anesthesiology, do not get a medical procedure in the afternoon when vigilance is low and <laughs> creativity totally. is high. <laughs> no, 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 no. But but there's but see, the afternoon is two things. Number one is that is that the afternoon is sort of has, has is or, or later in the day has, is has two different segments. One is the is this is this trough, which is a very very dangerous time, and the other one is this more kind of buoyant creative kind of thing. But but it is. I don't think this is a close call. Like, like nobody in my family is allowed to have a medical procedure in the afternoon. Period. Full stop. No way. Yeah. I mean, I mean because the, the, the numbers there are just overwhelming. Yeah, it was dramatic. Every hour that progresses, there's a five percent reduction in polyp detection on colonoscopies, and yep. then the probability of an adverse event with anesthesia. This is the Duke study. Yep. At nine a.m. was one percent, and at four four p.m. was four point two percent. Right. So there's a four x difference. Yeah. In a procedure that starts at nine and one that starts at, at four in the afternoon. This is this is this is a measure of anesthesia errors. So again, you know, four percent means you have a ninety six percent chance that nothing's going to go wrong. But a four percent chance of an anesthesia error is enough for me to say to somebody in my family, uh uh-uh. uh. No. And and I mean that 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 has changed my 
That has that has changed my behavior. Anything of, of medical significance, I do in the morning. A routine teeth cleaning, not that big of a deal to do in the afternoon. Right. But other stuff where you want the medical professional to be at her absolute best, you want to do it earlier in the day. And you also want to, if you, and it has implications for criminal reform, right? Because if you go, if you go in front of a parole board after lunch. Yeah, there's so that's there's a study showing some of that has been that that has proven to be a somewhat controversial study about offering judges making different decisions after breaks versus before breaks. There's been a battle over some of the data. The, the effect might not be as strong, but I think the effect still exists. There's some actually even alarming stuff. And again, it goes to how are we make decisions. To me, there's a, there's an experimental there's an experiment that was done that is sort of chilling in a way. What they did was this. They gave their participants a set of facts, and the facts were about a criminal defendant, all the facts of a criminal defendant. And they said, and they got gathered a bunch of people, and they said, for you, together we got a bunch of people, they said, okay, we're, you're going to deliberate here this morning. You're de- the only difference in the facts was that one group's defendant's name was Robert Garner, and the other one was Roberta Garcia. Mm. Otherwise, the facts were the same. When the jury deliberated in the morning... Same verdict for Garcia and Garner. No difference. Then they said, brought a new group of people, but they did the deliberations in the afternoon. Set of facts, defendant's name is Garner. Set of facts, the defendant's name is Garcia. In the afternoon, jurors were more likely to convict Garcia and exonerate Garner on the same set of facts. It's fucked up. It's totally messed up. It's terrifying. Mm -hmm. Because, again, going back to the core point here, we the most important thing if there's one a single takeaway from this research you don't even need to read the book i'll tell you what the single biggest takeaway is here which is this our brain power does not remain constant over the course of a day our brain power changes over the course of a day we might have an intuitive sense of that but this is a big freaking deal mm-hmm. our brain power does not remain constant over the course of the day it changes it changes in material ways and as a result of all this research, we know that the best time to do something depends on, on what you do. But yeah. so, so the, the meta idea takeaway is our brain power is not constant over the course of a day. It changes in material ways. And if you don't notice that, you're going to suffer. The ultra, at least the thing that you were talking about, the personal takeaway that might be the most important for your, yourself and your family is – don't go to the hospital in the afternoon if you can avoid it. Yeah. Basically, don't go to the hospital if you can avoid it. Every doctor will tell you that. <laughs> Hospitals are terrible places. But 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 don't go to the hospital in the afternoon if you can avoid it. Yeah. Well, and I think that it's what I would add, too, to the idea of brain power sort of vacillates is that I think a lot of us believe – that it's sort of a finite, like you have like a tank, right? And that you can run it down and then that might explain the afternoon slump. But that's not proven out by – I mean, it seems like you use it or you lose it. It just doesn't impact. Yeah, it's a great question. I think it depends. I mean, there there is a theory in – longstanding notion in, in psychology called ego depletion, mm-hmm. which is that we do get depleted over the course of a day or over time. And there have been some challenges to the validity of that ego depletion. I'm not sure what the mechanism is underneath. All I know is that there's a raft of data showing that people perform differently and make different decisions at different times of day. Yeah. Why that's happening, I think, is, is, is kind of unclear. Yeah. The other incredibly fantastic tip in this book is that, one, the resurgence of the nap, the short power oh, nap. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. And I was – because my husband does this, and I'm like, this makes no sense. But he's clearly very wise. Drink a coffee, take a nap. Yeah, this is – well, he's, you're, you're married a very wise man. <laughs> he, so, so here's what we know. Naps are pretty darn good for us. Yeah. Naps are very are, – are pretty effective at uh, restoring physical energy, mental acuity, and so forth, particularly during that period in the early to mid-afternoon when we have these big downdrafts. There's a lot of research, though, on, on, on the most effective kind of nap. And what we know, this, is, this really surprised me, the most effective naps are incredibly short, shorter than I would have imagined. Naps between 10 minutes and 20 minutes long are incredibly restorative. And they don't have what 
if you sleep beyond 20 minutes, if you're not beyond 20 minutes, you begin to suffer what's called sleep inertia, which is that groggy, mm-hmm. fuzzy feeling that you sometimes get from waking up for an extended nap. So a sh- ultra short nap between 10 and 20 minutes. But as your husband discovered, one of the, the smartest things to do to turbocharge that is to have a cup of coffee immediately before taking that nap. So, so for me, I will do this periodically. I'm trying to think of the last time I did this. I did it last week because actually I had like a virus and I wasn't feeling that great. And so what I would do is this. I would set my – there's my phone. You, millions of you listening at home can't see this, but I have my phone turned off on the desk – on the table between us. So I'll set my timer for 25 minutes. But right before I, I set it to go count down for 25 minutes, I'll just guzzle a cup of coffee. I won't even enjoy it. I'll literally will brew myself a cup of coffee, plunk some ice cubes in it, and just chug it. Okay. And, and, then, and then I will close my eyes, sit in a chair, close my eyes, and try to fall asleep. Often I'll wear noise-canceling headphones as well. And at this point, I can usually fall asleep in, I don't know, 9, 10 minutes. Okay, so let's say I fall asleep in nine minutes. Fall asleep in nine minutes. The alarm goes off in 25 minutes. So when the alarm goes off, I'll have slept for... 14 minutes. 16 minutes. 16 minutes. Shit. 16 minutes. That's okay. That's, <laughs> yeah, but within the window. Within the window. Yeah, nine minutes, 16. Yeah. Yeah, 16 minutes. So that's good. That's right within that sweet spot of 10 to 20. But as your husband has discovered, it takes about 25 minutes for caffeine to enter our bloodstream. So at the moment I'm waking up, perfectly timed nap... No sleep inertia. I get that second hit of caffeine because it takes 25 minutes for caffeine to enter our bloodstream. And so this is – so you get the, basically a double whammy. And this is a technique known as the nappuccino. The nappuccino. But what's interesting <laughs> to me is the amount of email I get on this nappuccino thing. And, and, it's, and it's basically from people like your husband who have said – I get two categories of email on this particular issue. People saying, this is how I got through graduate school and this is how I got through the military. Interesting. And I thought I was, the, and they say, and I thought I was the only one. People like made fun of me. It worked for me. It, I thought it was kind of weird. I can't believe that this is actually a thing. But yeah. for me, it's been a thing because it's how I survived my medical residency. It's how I survived my my three years being st- being stationed at you know somewhere in in Arabia. And this yeah. is how I survived. It's amazing. It's so practical. So I love some of the other things in here, like when to quit a job, when to get divorced, although you don't say when to get divorced. You essentially just talk about the seasonality of it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. But when to get married. Well, again, this is is just – I'm I'm loath to – here here we can look at the patterns of what we know, and and it can be a warning sign for people. So what we know is that – there are two months of the – this is research out of the University of Washington. There are two months of the year where across America there are massive spikes in divorce filings. Two months of the year account for I think it's half or over half of the divorce filings. And so if you look at the chart, the chart has these two spikes. So these two months of the year where there are massive spikes in divorce. And so those two months are March and August. And again, we don't know exactly why. But we can speculate. Yeah. Right. And you speculate that it's people get, trying to get through the holidays and then I would imagine waiting to, for their kids to come home from camp so they can tell them at the end of the summer. Well, here's the thing. It has to do with what we can measure. Yeah. This is really important here. So we can't measure the moment when someone decides in his head, I'm out of here. Right. We can't measure that. What we can, we, what can, we, what we can measure is when that person's spouse makes a filing in court. Right. Okay. So that's that's important. So the theory is, or the speculation is that in the w- winter holidays, people are just they're around family. They're trying to make it work, at least look good, whatever. They get to the beginning of the year and they're like, okay, this is totally doomed. I can't do it. And it takes some time to get the machinery of a divorce in in gear. You have to find a lawyer, et cetera, et cetera, figure it out. And so the filing ends up happening in March. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is true as you say for the school year. Many couples with kids will say, okay, you know what? We're going to get divorced, but let's just make it through the school year so it's not disruptive to the kids. So it's June and school year ends and then they start getting pieces in motion and then – or even maybe even they make their decision. They say, well, let's see if we can keep it together for the school year. They get to the end of the school year and like, oh, this is what I thought in February. We're doomed. 
then they then they get the machinery in place and they make their filing in August. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. Just it, it's a for all of you who are married, just check your email vigilantly in March and August. <laughs> <laughs> See if you've been served. <laughs> Let's talk about testing. And because this seems to have major sociological or major social implications for kids and also what's happened in the school systems where there's just there are no breaks. Right. Like we have this sort of grinding school culture, although I think it's Harvard Westlake in L.A. They just push back their start date for the day to like eight or nine, nine, maybe eight thirty or nine. That's great. Yeah. But I mean, all the research shows later start times, more breaks. Testing in the morning. So there are three. So those are three. Those are three different things, and they don't. They don't all grow from the same root. So let's talk about the first one first. So what we know. Let's go back to this idea of what chronobiologists know about our chronotypes: early people, middle people, late people. What we know is that most little kids are very strong morning people. They get up early, start You're running around me. like I know. I hear you. They get around. <laughs> they get up early, start running around like crazy people from the beginning. However. For most young people, the mid-teens to mid-20s is a period where there is a significant move toward lateness. They just naturally get up late and go to sleep later. And so as a consequence of that, many teenagers are real, are just really like almost literally not awake at 7.30 or 8 in the morning because their, bo- their bodies aren't awake yet. And it's so bad that the American Academy of Pediatrics has said – to school districts all over America, do not start school for teenagers. Little kids, we can start early. Do not start school for teenagers before 8.30 in the morning. It is contraindicated by everything that we know about teenage biology. And yet, what we have throughout America is, well, first of all, we have an average start time among for teenagers of 8.03 a.m. So the average school is starting way before pediatricians say it should start. And then there are other schools that are starting ridiculously early, mm-hmm. too early. But then there, there's still more schools that are putting teenagers on, putting 15-year-olds on buses at 6.30 in the morning, yeah. which is insane. So, so, the, so if you think about the American Academy of Pediatrics, just think about, you know, every pediatrician you know linking arms and saying, stop doing this thing. We also know from other school districts that have changed their start times that what you see is you see higher test scores, less teen depression, less teen anxiety, some big effects, big effects. And you see there's a paper that came out just two weeks ago in – we're talking in Washington, D.C., in Fairfax County, Virginia, which is northern Virginia suburb of Washington, showing big effects on car accidents. A lot of – I know you're a a Montana and there's a big study out of um, the big – what we in the East Coast think of as these ginormous Western states, you know, Montana, you know, uh, Idaho, Wyoming, you know, those giant states where Colorado was in there too, showing big declines in teenage car accidents by pushing back the start time. I'm sure. I mean, you are. You're driving impaired. Yeah. And those roads are icy, I know, from my from just being there the other week. But yeah, and then it seems – it sort of brings up all these other big social questions, which we probably don't have time for. But, you know, we don't have – it affects – obviously, there's a balance between when we start work and when our kids start school. And we don't have any good child care options in this country. And But it, it feels like in order to compete in the world, we have to do something about our education system and take better care of our teens. This is a very controversial issue. It's surprisingly controversial because the – Medical evidence is not a close call. Yeah. The, the, the arguments against pushing back school start times for teenagers are not medical arguments at all because the, ev- the medical evidence is incontrovertible. The arguments are basically about adult convenience. Right. They really are. Some of it is it's like, well, I don't want my kids to have different start times because then I can't drop them off at the same time and that's going to be inconvenient for me. You get an enormous amount of pushback from – you get an enormous amount of pushback from uh, coaches. Yeah. They say, well, how are we going to start? I, I like to start practice at 2.30. If we, kids, if we start school at 9 or 9.15, then practice is going to start later. There are other kids who say, well, I have a job after school, and if it starts too late, I can't work at my job. But none of these, are, none of these arguments are about <laughs> health or education. They're really about 
convenience. Yeah. And it seems like if you look at Finland where kids get a 15-minute break every hour, we could probably spend – Less time in a schoolroom, more time playing. Oh, I, I, oh, I agree with that. So that's a that's a, a it's an adjacent issue. You're exactly right. What we know is for both little people and big people that breaks are more important than we realize. Yeah. That that we Americans have been seduced into this very puritanical way of thinking about things, where breaks are a concession, breaks are a sign of softness, breaks are a sign of weakness, breaks are a sign, lack of professionalism. When every piece of evidence we have shows that. Breaks are essential in our performance, and particularly for, particularly for kids. So what we have is this totally wrong-headed view of let's – in order to have our kids perform at a higher level, let's eliminate recess. And what we should be doing is actually integrating recess more deeply into the school curriculum because our kids, their bodies and their brains need breaks. And our old people, bodies and brains need breaks. And yet for some reason the culture, the culture of America is – viciously, viciously anti-break. Once again, it is – that's in the face of evidence. There's, I mean, this, is, this one's not a close call either. But it has to do with cultural biases and cultural preferences, mistaken beliefs taking over, you know, pushing back on, on very, very sound medical evidence. Yeah. I mean, it goes again to what we were talking about earlier, which is that somehow we have this sustainable or finite brain power that can be meted out throughout the day – to the to great effect, right? And not taking into account sort of the humanness of of how we operate. There again, once again, there is a lot of evidence showing that I mean at, at a broad level, like I mean this is something I got wrong because I I was someone who never took breaks because I was seduced by this belief that professionals didn't take breaks, only amateurs took breaks. And what we know from musical performance, athletic performance, test taking is that that's 180 degrees wrong, mm-hmm. <laughs> that that amateurs are the ones who don't take breaks, that professionals take breaks. And you see this in some very interesting research in musical performance where the top performers are actually take more breaks and, and longer breaks than the people who are, who are amateurs. You see this in at least anecdotally in professional – not even professional but elite athletes. Elite athletes don't go – try to power through everything. They're very intentional about it their breaks because they need their mind and their body to recover. They know that that's performance enhancing, not performance degrading. Yeah. No, I mean, we it, clearly this country needs a paradigm shift, but it feels like we're at a point of like acknowledging that the way that we're doing things is not working. I think so. I mean, I don't want to be too dark and, 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 and gloomy because, again, if you if you, you let's go to the state, the state of California. So you mentioned, you know, there's so 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 well-known independent school is saying, hey, we're going to move back our start time. But California passed a law pushing back state start times for it was vetoed by Governor Brown, signed into law that, subsequently by Governor Newsom pushing back start times for teenagers. And we're not talking anything crazy here. Right. We're just talking like starting school at 9. We're yeah. not talking about starting school at 1 in the afternoon. And so there is and there's been there's been some movement on that. There's been some movement on that on that front. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Daniel Pink. For more on Daniel, head to danpink.com. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.